I Am The Fly is a podcast about a brief time in the late 20th century, when a cassette tape ran 90 minutes but held infinite promise, when drugs went suburban and parents didn't helicopter, when stars walked among us but you couldn't even prove it. I Am The Fly, David Klein, guiding you through the pre-digital past on a pair of warped wings. In this episode, my best friend and I meet a real rock star, and I discover the joys of juvenile delinquency courtesy of Tenafly's own Rum Bum Gang. Left side of the circle, Frazier backs in to Monroe. He moves to the corner, he stops, fade away. Yes! 86, 78, with three tenths remaining in the side of the backcourt. Across the midcourt line, bothered by Monroe. And center court hands to Robinson. Tommy Roberts roots for New York sports teams with fierce Catholic devotion. The Mets over the Yankees, the Giants over the Jets. One night we take a bus rented by the Tenafly Recreation Commission to see Tommy's beloved Knicks play the Buffalo Braves at Madison Square Garden. Tommy understands hoops way better than I do, and he has on-court skills to match, not to mention a pair of Puma Clydes. I hope the Knicks win, but I don't care if they do. I'm just happy being with Tommy and watching these outsized heroes in the flesh. Willis Reed, Walt Frazier, Dave D. and Bill B., and Hawthorne Wingo, who has the best name, and whose third quarter entrance has the crowd ecstatically chanting, Wingo! 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 After the game, as we make our way back to the bus, happily stuffed with popcorn and hot dogs, and savoring a Knicks victory, I glimpse a figure familiar to me from the Aqualung cover. Standing with his back to a pretzel cart, the man has a narrow face, wispy beard, a crazed tangle of hair, and a coat that goes past his knees. Holy crap, Tommy. Look! Look! It's Ian Anderson! Over there! In the coat! What? That's him! Get out! Who? That guy? Yeah, that guy! Come on, we have to go talk to him. Tommy assents, but obviously I'll do the talking. Excuse me, but are you Ian Anderson? He smiles, and in a voice that is English and plausibly Anderson-esque, he says he is. Would you like a chestnut, he says, tilting the bag toward me. Tommy, naturally suspicious, tugs my arm, like, don't eat that. It could be poisoned. I've never had one before, I say. Oh, do try one. They're awfully good. Noting my hesitation, he reaches into the steaming bag and plucks one out for me. Tommy's look says, go ahead, it's your funeral. Chestnuts taste like they smell, which is not bad at all, but they're kind of chalky and require a bit of chewing. He doesn't seem anxious to move on, but the minute I get a good swallow in, I make sure to ask for an autograph. Oh, yes indeed, he says, happily. I hand him my program and regulation navy blue MSG pencil stub. What's your name then? As leader of Jethro Tull, the shaggy-headed, codpiece-wearing Ian Anderson was famous for playing the flute while balanced on one leg. Throughout most of the 1970s, his band could sell out Madison Square Garden on consecutive nights. They were so big, it wasn't even necessary to say Jethro. Tull was enough. To many of us, Tull was the preferred terminology. A junior counselor at Camp Greylock with a big blonde frizz and starter beard initiated me. 
All it took was the six diabolical notes of that opening riff of Aqualung to strafe my mental landscape with tall bullets and scar it forever. For this was no bright, shining Beatles lick. This was pure sinew. Kind of ugly, almost. But beautiful ugly. The benign weirdos I'd met through the Beatles, Nowhere Man, The Fool on the Hill, The Barber Showing Photographs, had not prepared me for the medieval village of grotesques living within the green-brown covers of my copy of Aqualon. There was Cross-Eyed Mary, the Bearded Lady, a Chicken Fancier, the Jackknife Barber, and that's just side one. The Eras Christ fixation was represented too in Hymn 43, featuring a refrain of But it all begins with a wizened beggar, improbably named Aqualung, whom we first meet famously, you might say, and then the lyric that sealed the deal, not just for me, but for tens of thousands around the world. Beatles songs were tidy affairs. Only the implicit cranial spray from Maxwell's silver hammer and yellow matter custard dripping from a dead dog's eye besmear the Beatles cannon with gross liquids. In giving snot pride of place, Jethro Tull spoke to us as few others had. Gang vocaling the phlegm lyric among a chorus of boys brandishing air tennis rackets is the closest I've ever come to unison church singing. In true prog rock fashion, Aqualung is episodic, full of sudden pivots. One minute, Yumi Us is scampering along in the sun-streaking cold as the desperate protagonist bends to pick a dog end. Why, Aqualung? Why? Sure, dog end is British slang for discarded cigarette butt, but how were we nine-year-old Yanks to know it didn't mean dog turd? Next, Anderson's got his busker's voice on. But look out, here it comes, that behemoth guitar riff, those monster drums, on the park bench. that damnable park bench. By the end of this six-minute mini-opus, whether it's the first or 500th hearing, you just can't help but love the old coot. The leering, the lack of hygiene, just Aqualung being Aqualung. This was the first album I wanted really badly to own. On a weekend morning when Dad was about to drive out to Sam Goody on Route 4, I announced my intention to spend my allowance on a particular record. I was cagey, though. The unfamiliar clank of the word Aqualung was sure to arouse suspicion. At the cashier, I handed my prize to Dad along with some dollars. He studied the cover painting of the bent-over vagabond, the words Jethro Tull and Aqualung, rendered in white medieval typeface at the top left corner. On the back, a mock Bible verse begins, In the beginning man created God, and in the image of man created he him. I imagined Dad might be impressed by such high-minded verbiage, but I detected a trace of disapproval in his narrowing brow. Listening to the lung and the den through Dad's pillow-soft light gray headphones, the land of Tull was just as I remembered it from summer camp. Mini epics interspersed with beguiling acoustic reveries 
power chords doing the do-si-do with flute soli. Conceptually, Aqualung never revealed its secrets to me. That whole man-made god and god-made man business went right over my head. Even the album's gatefold painting, scruffy men in a pub, depicted in a sort of Caravaggio lighting, refused to become comprehensible. My brother Johnny found my tall zeal bemusing. He was buying records like Spaces by jazz fusion wonderkind Larry Coriel. Rolling Stone called it one of the most beautiful, perfectly realized instrumental albums in a long while. And though Johnny's choices vexed Dad, who was dumbstruck when the kid came home with Europe 72, a three-record set by the Grateful Dead, purchasing critically acclaimed LPs was in accordance with family tradition. Critics knew their stuff, and once you knew your stuff, you could be a critic too. I definitely wanted Johnny to love Tull and appreciate my coolness for turning him on to them, but he didn't share my enthusiasm. No doubt he'd read some of the cutting reviews the band began to engender once its lineup shifted from a blues-based ensemble to an unwavering focus on Anderson and his flute-flavored predilections. I alone would have to hoist the tall torch. Not that I took to wearing a dirty trench coat or anything, but when the conversation came around to music, it was always, Are you into tall? And woe be unto he or she who responded, Yeah, he's great. He? How delicious I found it to convey to these poor deluded souls that Jethro Tull was just the name of the band, man, and that the lead singer was not named Jethro, but Ian. This stance didn't win me any friends, but I felt entitled to my junior pedantry. The lesson, at least at Five Sherwood, seemed to be that when you were totally 100% right about something, you were allowed to rub it in a little. Well, how were we to know that on February 25th, 1973, Jethro Tull was in the midst of the Thick as a Brick tour, somewhere between Finland and Sweden? Even if Ian Anderson had a few nights off and managed to jet stateside for some R&R in Gotham, it's hard to imagine he'd spend Saturday night at a basketball game all on his Jack Jones, or that he would be feeling so convivial. Anderson had just churned out two side-length religion-themed concept albums in a row, the latest of which, a passion play, was stoking new forms of rock journal abuse. Stephen Holden of Rolling Stone called the record 45 minutes of vapid twittering that strangles under the tonnage of its pretensions. The coming years would bring more self-serious tall records and more tall concerts at the Garden. My fandom never wavered, even as my patience was tested by Anderson's perplexing sartorial choices. Songs from the Wood, for example. Let me bring you songs from the wood where Ian appears as a dandified Renaissance-era archery instructor, and heavy horses. The cover of which shows Anderson flanked by two of his prized equines. Did this make him any less relevant or relatable to a Jersey teen adrift in the soup of high school? Nah. He was a rock star, and he had earned his baubles. It took 1979's Stormwatch with its cover showing Anderson clutching a pair of military-grade binox and the LP title in bright red alarm clock font for me to finally let go.
somewhere in the digital age, when Anderson's crazy hair was almost gone, and he was playing solo engagements at classy theaters, I found myself staring at that Knicks program, specifically the full-page ad on the back cover for Eastern Airlines, The Wings of Man, with its fading, soft-penciled inscription in the lower right corner. Good luck, David. Ian Anderson. A Google search reveals that Ian Anderson has a very distinct signature. He tops his cursive capital I with an oblong loop resembling an upside-down half-note. The one on my Nick's program has a similar loop, but on the bottom segment of the letter. Anderson's A has a sharp, pointed peak, indicating a strong ego, while the one on my program is round as an apple, often an indication of a reserved or cautious personality. Not only was the guy we met not the lead singer of Jethro Tull, he and Ian Anderson were polar opposites, at least if handwriting analysis is any indication. Still, that meeting became part of our shared childhood. Hell, he looked like Ian Anderson, sounded like Ian Anderson might have sounded, and said he was Ian Anderson. That was enough for me to eat food from his hand. I suppose he could have been more like Aqualung, an unstable, possibly dangerous street person eyeing little girls and naive kids from the suburbs with bad intent. Where were the authorities? We had been instructed to meet back at the bus after the game. How we got there and who we stopped to nosh with, was up to us. The question remains as to motivation. Why would anyone go through with such a charade? In retrospect, I see it as a minor crime of opportunity. We approached him and credulously posed a question. Where was the harm in having a little fun at our expense? He didn't do anything to make us feel uncomfortable. Hell, he made our night. Never did we dream we'd been duped. We came away believers that rock stars walked among us, that we had met an actual one, even that some residual coolness had rubbed off on us. After all, we were the ones it happened to. In the fall, I start junior high. And what a different world it is. Smith School was a simple building whose hallways traced a soothing oval. Junior High takes place in an imposing three-floor brick facility near the town center, where four elementary schools worth of kids are all unceremoniously dumped together. Tommy gravitates toward the so-called cool crowd, the rule breakers, so that becomes my de facto group too. Some of these kids are familiar to me from Little League, the ones whose mothers bellowed at them from the stands in coarse Jersey accents. But sharing classroom space with them is something new. In our first Spanish class, a group of them stand in the back and roll their eyes as the teacher assigns them Spanish names and chuckle as she prompts us through the Spanish alphabet. The Spanish name for the letter Y, Y, strikes them as especially funny. I admit it, they scare me a little. But somehow, these are my guys. On a Friday or Saturday night, when no one's parents are gone long enough to allow for a house party, we head to the Tenafly Railroad tracks. To the Rumbum. It was called the Rumbum because the kids who first discovered it 
had gotten shit-faced there on Bacardi Rum. No more than a recessed rectangular space hidden from view by shrubs and bushes that run along the fence proper, it barely qualifies as a place. Someone's big brother, or an older kid whose experiments in facial hair have progressed to the point where he can pass for 18, buys us beer, and down the tracks, toting brown-bagged six-packs we go. At the appointed spot, we crouch down and maneuver through the tangle of shrub to sit in a cramped semicircle in our jean jackets and waffle stumpers, beyond the prying eyes of parents and the cops. The Rumbum Gang ranges in size from a half dozen to twenty kids in their mid-teens, with names like Ricky and Ronnie and Kenny and Donnie. Most of them are Catholic, Irish or Italian, and live nearby, on the fabled other side of the tracks. They are proudly tough and belligerent kids who smoke, spit, and swear like their fathers. Their most distinctive aspect is a self-invented argot whose main feature is a sarcastic intonation at the end of an utterance followed by though or though mabe. Such a good haircut, though. The Rumbum Gang does little actual word coinage. The lingo thrives on the creative reuse of word scraps, like though, well, maybe, and might, combined with that intonation. He well, though, is the all-purpose, you're full of it. Like jazz, the lingo is infinitely customizable according to the taste and sensibility of the practitioner. Popov. That's Scotty Moo's way of inviting you to pop over and misbehave at his house while Mrs. Moo is at work. Button best is Zombo Ralston's way of saying, gee, this cigarette tastes good. Donnie Faves is really into might. I might go out with her. In the way, though? Sometimes discourse morphs into straight-up caveman talk. I've seen arguments consisting of little more than ye, me, ye, me. The gang's most clever term is its designation for nerds, who are known as ghouls. Spare is big because people are constantly bumming cigarettes. Spare bub though, Mabe? But spare has morphed into a sort of all-purpose modifier, pitched somewhere between adjective and adverb, like linguistic umami. Spare ghoul though, Mabe? Means check out the nerd in Tenafly Ease. I am not a natural among a tough crowd, and being friends with Tommy doesn't always save me from getting pushed around or toyed with, like the night Billy Ratty turned me on to an oregano joint, or when I wouldn't trade Prune Merrifield to Heineken for a bud and he chased me all the way into town, past the diner and around the Dairy Queen, twice. On the third revolution he gave up, huffing and puffing. He is called Prune, after all. Worse, one day at Angela's, a pizza joint on Tenafly's main drag, Tony D and I were at a table and back with slices and sodas. In came two slice-holding toughs, Jerry and Jack, who seated themselves right behind me. At some point, Jerry lights a cigarette and, unprovoked, jabs the lit tip into my upper arm. He and Jack share a hearty laugh when I jump. I also have a knack for making life difficult for myself without any assistance. One night, to assuage a dire case of the munchies, six of us crowded into a booth at Friendly's, ready to do our worst. I'd been hearing a lot about the fabled Jim Dandy, a deluxe banana split with six scoops of ice cream. This was my first Jimmy D, and I hadn't anticipated the detailed scoop-selecting process that accompanied ordering one. Bulldog went first, and then Donnie Faves, and it was all double chocolate and rocky road and triple fudge swirl, rugged macho flavors. 
First out of my mouth was Dutch apple. That much I remember. Pretty sure blueberry came next, followed by something else pastel-colored. Midway through ordering Tenafly's most effeminate ice cream sundae, my error was pointed out to me. Dutch apple? What are you, a fucking tutti-frutti, Klein? Barks Frank Gianfranco, who smokes pot with his dad, already has a criminal record, and never leaves home without his trusty metal pipe packed with resin-coated weed in the middle chamber. The stuff makes you cough like crazy, and naturally gets you extra wasted. <laughs> once you've finished hacking. Pfft, fucking faggot, mutters Bulldog, scowling even harder than usual. So fruity, though? Opines Kenny Sabasco. My next three scoops were all virile as hell. Bourbon, pine tar, gravel, but the damage was done. I spend much of my tenure among these hoods, attempting to keep my inner Dutch apple in check, but gaining a foothold socially is a fraught endeavor. The night Mom went out to cover a council meeting, and I invited the gang over to smoke some reefer, being a case in point. In the morning when you rise, do you open up your eyes, see what I see? Do you see the same things every day? It was balmy for February, yet nobody was game for sitting on the softly angled section of roof right outside my bedroom window. I had Yesterday's playing, a compilation of Yes tracks from the band's first few albums that were not widely available stateside, and everybody was really into it. Time in a Word had a definite inspirational peace vibe. Have you heard of a time that will help us get it together again? Have you heard of the word that will stop us going Tommy convinced me it would be okay if we just took turns sitting on the windowsill, leaning outside and blowing the smoke out into nature and shit. It was an imperfect system. Suddenly there's some kind of commotion at the other end of the room. I look over and Tommy is leaning against the bedroom door, struggling to keep it shut and fiercely whispering that my mother is on the other side and wants in. Through her work at Tenafly Women for Peace, Mom has gotten back into reporting, now she's covering local politics for the regional newspaper and even winning some awards for her work. But she's never been a great calendar keeper, and she must have missed the cancellation of a local city council meeting in honor of George Washington's birthday. Mom forces her way inside and is livid at having her entry blocked. Then, haha, she notices the odor. Naively, I imagine she might not know what she's smelling. Perhaps she merely detects a novel presence in the air, and just can't place it? I was, uh, polishing my guitar, I meekly assert over the fading thunder of my pal's work boots. Let's just say Mom does not buy the pot-scented guitar polish gambit. On the streets of Tenafly, the gang runs into Johnny as he's returning home. When they tell him what happened, he laughs and laughs. Johnny, it should be said, is into way worse, but where I am the bumbling accomplice, he is the master criminal who evades capture through stealth and cunning and deep reserves of nerve. One example will suffice. Dad hates Fish and his parents in almost equal measure. This is one of the few things I know for certain about Dad. He says his parents love money and showing off, they don't read, and they prattle on about inconsequential people and things. He makes sure we all know this as a kind of forewarning not to become the kind of person our grandparents are. As for the seafood antipathy, there's no precipitating incident I know of, no forced feeding of spoiled gefilte fish that set him off, 
although it should be mentioned that Dad's dad is an avid fisherman. Bottom line, we are a fish-rejecting household until one night when Johnny dares to opt for the fried shrimp plate at the New Englander in Teaneck. What can Dad do? We have no explicit anti-fish policy. It's just understood that you order a burger or something. With this one iconoclastic act, Johnny upsets the established order, and he's just getting warmed up. For it seemed that Johnny began to take bass lessons from my guitar teacher in a similar spirit of bold individualism. I couldn't imagine why anyone would want to do anything besides play guitar, sing, or play drums, but then my grasp on the function of the bass was as tenuous as my knowledge of shellfish. In my defense, bass was hard to detect on an AM radio or a cheap stereo, and it was often kept low in the mix under the best of conditions. One day Johnny put on Baby You're a Rich Man and had me listen to what Paul McCartney was doing, and I started to see a new dimension. Johnny had pondered that dimension extensively. He discerned that it took timing and fluidity and feel to make it come out right. Even the damnably simple ones had to be felt, not just played. Johnny was a better bass player after three lessons than I was after a year on guitar. He was always two steps ahead, and I did my best to keep up with him, which turned us into co-conspirators. It began with milking our glasses. One morning Mom asked us if we drunk our milk, and we said we had. Both of us hated milk except on cereal, but Mom insisted that we drain a glass at breakfast. Noting that our glasses in the sink were untouched by milk, she gave us a good yelling at. I would have straightened up and flown right, but Johnny had a workaround. From then on, we would simply pour ourselves a glass of milk each morning and dump the contents down the drain when no one was looking, which was most of the time. Voila. Glasses milked, bottle suitably emptied, house rules complied with. Stealth and cunning. No milk today, my love has gone away. The bottle stands forlorn, a symbol of the dawn. No milk today, it seems a common sight. But people passing by don't know the reason why. How could they know? By the time Pot entered the scene, we were already accomplished sneaks. Sharing a joint in the woods near the Cotswold on grass strewn with melting snow, or taking the dog out for a late night walk, making sure to grab a breathy to keep from smelling herbaceous when we got back. I smoked my first cigarette with Tommy Roberts, whose dad smoked trues because he had to give up the Marlboros. By junior high, Johnny and I usually kept a pack stashed. Out of the land of the tobacco plant come a tall, hard-riding, long, lean bloke, feared by his friends and enemies alike, called by the name of Johnny Smoke. Johnny Smoke. Johnny Smoke. Where are you ahead, Johnny Smoke? My father being a cancer doctor and vocally anti-smoking was something I wrestled with. But for every time I considered what the smoke was doing to my lungs, I would recall a treasured passage from Circus Magazine's interview with Chris Squire of Yes. As they say, a man with a cigarette is never alone.
next, it's Led Zeppelin at Madison Square Garden, and Robert Plant hates our guts. I am the fly.